If you were a person who had always wanted to be very successful in the world of real estate, but you'd never been able to sell a, a single home or a single building, and, and you wanted to figure out how to do it, uh, well, you might buy a book uh, entitled Trump Strategies for Real Estate, Billionaire Lessons for the Small Investor. You might get some direction there, but I wonder if someone said, well, I can help you. Uh, I've written something, too, and you found out that this person had never sold a home or a building in his life, and in fact, had never had a home. Would, wouldn't you be a little bit suspicious? Or if it had always been the goal of your life to become fabulously wealthy and you'd never been able to do it, you might go and buy uh, J. Paul Getty's How to Be Rich, <laughs> his formulas, uh, because after all, he, he was able to do that. But I wonder if, if walking into church, someone would tell you, well, uh, I can help you out. I've written a pamphlet, too. And you found that this person had been, well, worse off than you and had been bankrupt his whole life. You, you might be a little bit suspicious, don't you think? Now, just think. If someone were to tell you, I have found the secret for real living. If you want to live well and experience peace, shalom, well-being in your life, I've been the one that God himself has given this commission, this stewardship, to declare to you how God is made for life to be lived. And then you begin to listen and you find out that this same person is in a prison. <laughs> well, would you be a little bit suspicious? Well, that brings us to our text today. Paul has been talking about that very thing. Uh, the, the, the God who made the universe had had a plan before the creation of the world that in this difficult, fallen world, he was going to plant a family. And in that family, he would make us right with him, right with one another. He would give us the opportunity to live the way God had created us to live, to set us free from addictions, to set us free from our own bondages, to offer us forgiveness of sins and the opportunity really to live created to do good works which God had prepared in advance for us to do. And you say, I need to hear about that. I need to hear about that. My life hasn't been all that it should be. And then you find out that he is, chapter 3, verse 1, sitting in a prison in Rome. I, I wonder, would you be a little bit suspicious? Do you notice the way that he begins? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I'll tell you, when you come to that text, it brings us to a question that followers of Jesus all over the world and followers of Jesus from the history of the church, from the very beginnings, have had to wrestle with. And that is, how is it possible that we have come to know the God, the maker of the universe, and in knowing him, as he said in, in chapter 1, you and I have available to us the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, and yet you find a Christian like Paul going through such difficult times. And, and it's not simply when he was a Christian, was it? He calls himself a prisoner of Christ. It was because, it was because he was a Christian. And it makes you wrestle with all these things. Why would Christ put Paul in a prison? 
And, and so many times when I've, I've talked about this subject, people have thrown back to me the many promises in the Bible about how God says, I'll take care of you. Things like Luke chapter 21, verse 18, that tells us that not a single hair of our head will fall out. And then I look in the mirror and I see that I simply don't have as much as I used to. I mean, what do we do with that sort of thing? You see, uh, let's face it this morning as we gather here. um, Since the earliest days of the church, uh, Christians have had to wrestle with the fact that sometimes very difficult things come into our lives. That we're not immune to the difficulties that happen in this world. And as I've indicated, they not only come when we are followers of Jesus, but sometimes, isn't it true, have you experienced it? Sometimes the discouraging things happen, the disillusioning things happen specifically because we're following Jesus. And that brings us to the text of the day. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. I've already pointed it out to you before I, I, I read the text to you. Um, he started out wanting to pray for them, but then something, a question comes that he has to deal with before he finally gets back to the prayer in verse 14. He said, for this reason, I'm going to pray for you, Paul says, but he doesn't get to the prayer until he says again in verse 14, for this reason, now I am going to pray for you. So let's think about what's happening here. Paul had just declared, Joel had just declared that God is at work in this world. God has a purpose that he is going to bring to completion. He sent his one and only son into this world to to make sure it happens. The the opportunity is the very thing we saw last week. God has done something to make you and me right with him. God is holy and perfect and we weren't alive to him, but God loves us anyway. Hallelujah. And uh, he sent his one and only son into this world who gave his life so that you and I could be forgiven and made new. And so we have an opportunity to be made right with one another. But God has said, I want to make you also right with other people in my family. God's eternal plan was to create an unexpected family of God. God Paul says this wasn't a new thing. Yes, there were some mystery elements to it, verses 2 through 13. But it wasn't a new thing. God had always said that he would have his people, the people of Israel, bless all nations. And a time would come when all nations would bring glory to God. But the the mystery was, how was God going to do it? How was God going to do it? Paul says, now we know. Now we know. Because God came in Christ. And through, through faith in Jesus Christ, number one, we can be made right with God. And number two, we are made right with all who are in the family of God. But as I mentioned before, in the first century, some people who were in that family specifically didn't want to be in that family together. For them, it was Jew and Gentile. Do you think that was the only place they had to wrestle with that in Ephesus? Isn't it true that we still have that situation? Sometimes we, uh, we just don't want to be in that family with some of those people that are in that family. So I just see, the way I see Ephesians 3, 1 beginning is, Paul says, I need to pray for these people. They need the power of God to live out this unity. And I can still believe he would pray the same thing for us in 21st century Southern California, don't you think? For this reason, he says, I'm going to pray. And I can almost picture him thinking, all right, I'm going to tell them where I am because I'm going to use all the clout I can get. They're going to listen more carefully because I'm I'm in a pretty tough place because I brought them this message. For, For this reason, I, Paul, and remember, I am a prisoner because I brought this gospel to you. Because as he did, of course, people were offended by it. The Jews were very troubled by it and always were trying to get the authorities to come against Paul. 
So I'm going to remind you of that, but then it seems to me as I read it. Uh, as he mentioned, remember I'm a prisoner of Christ. It brought up this big question. Uh, what is the great apostle Paul doing in a prison? And so he begins to talk with them from verse 2 to 13. Because in verse 13, he doesn't want them to be discouraged because of his sufferings. They could be discouraged on, on two different levels. But one, they, they could be discouraged because if that happens to the, the apostle and we become followers of Jesus, what might happen to us, right? But on the other side, he took it a little bit more positively. I don't want you to become discouraged because I, I am suffering. Let me, let me tell you, this issue of followers of Jesus suffering because we're wanting to live for God. I'm guessing that all of us either have experienced that or know a lot of people who have. Is that, is that true? Uh, I've thought back to my pastoral ministry and from the earliest days of being a pastor, as I've dealt with people that I really cared about, I found that, that this was a big issue for them. I, I was thinking of several of the stories. The first pastor, uh, pastorate that I had was in Wisconsin and there was in that church uh, an FBI agent. He was a young FBI agent and he loved to go out with me. I think I had more time back in those days. He loved to go out with me and try to stump the pastor with ethical issues. And uh, one, of the, one of the tough questions he brought, I've never forgotten it, is this. He says, all right, Pastor Greg, I have a question for you. Uh, going into my FBI office, we have had, I don't know how long, but we've always had a policy that when you go into the office, you sign in and put the time of your arrival. Uh, of course, uh, when you put the time, everybody after you has to put the, their time being later than yours. He said, in our office, almost nobody gets in before 8.30. I'm always the first one in. But they, we have had a long time tradition, and our supervisor knows about it, that the first one who comes in signs in at 6.30. Now, you, see, you're at this pretty sharp group, even 9 o'clock hour. You're beginning to see the ethical problem, aren't you? So he's the first one in the office, usually a half hour before anybody else comes in. And he says, my conscience is telling me from your last sermon that I should put down the time, I should be an honest person, and put that I get there at 8 o'clock. And yet everybody who comes after me now has to put in later, and they are angry with me, including my supervisor, who says I'm just creating problems for the whole office. I may lose my job. All right, Mr. Pastor, what does a Christian do? Or I thought in my last church of a young woman who had taken a job uh, waiting tables. And out of conscience, she began thinking that she needed to report all of her tips. But as she reported all of her tips for tax purposes, it became clear that she was making three to four times the amount of tips of everybody else in the restaurant because they didn't. And it was common practice, and the supervisor knew about it. And she told me that the pressure was so strong for her to lie about the amount of tips that she uh, actually earned that she had been threatened with the loss of her job. Now, I have you ever experienced anything like this? So here is Paul. It was because he was wanting to live out his faith and do what God had called him to do that he was in a prison. What do you do about that as a Christian? And that's what this section is all about. Uh, and Paul teaches us. Now, as we turn to this text, 
Uh, you'll see that there are some difficult theological parts. I'm, I'm going to touch upon them, but mostly I want you to get to the main point. I want to show you how does a Christian handle discouragement when we're in those discouraging moments, even in those times when we are seeking to walk with God. I want you to notice what Paul does not do, what he does not say we should do. He does not take what I call the Eeyore approach. I'm looking to see if anybody knows who Eeyore is. Uh, I've already mentioned Eeyore because I like Eeyore, the A.A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh stories. Uh, Eeyore the donkey was... He was one of my favorite characters, but I don't think I would have wanted to spend much time with him because I think I'd just be depressed all the time. Eeyore, Eeyore, oh, woe is me. Everything goes right for everyone else, Pooh, but it always goes wrong for me. And sometimes we take that approach as a Christian. Woe is us, churchgoers, followers of Jesus. All of the strategies in this secular world are going against us. It's going to be terrible. It will never get better. Just that, that downcast. When you read through what Paul says, there's no discouragement here, is there? He is so upbeat about the privilege that he has in spite of where he is. So it's not the Eeyore approach, nor did, which is the, the approach of the cynic. Nor does he take what I call the gr- rosy glasses approach, the overly optimistic approach, the, what, what might even be called the romantic uh, approach And I guess in that same series of characters, someone mentioned to me last night, that is the Tigger. That is the Tigger in the Winnie the Pooh stories. It's this sort of thing. Oh, this isn't going to last long. Just for a moment, I have a little bit of a difficulty. But just in a moment, God's going to turn this around. And, and tomorrow, everybody's going to see that they're wrong and I am right. He, Paul does not do that. He doesn't misapply a text that I've often heard misapplied. His own, Romans 8:28. For we know that in all things God is at work for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. You notice in that, and, and I'll be coming back to this, God is at work in all things for the good. But that doesn't mean that he's going to turn that circumstance around in a moment. And as Chris, my wife, once said to me, he doesn't promise even that that circumstance will change. Sometimes he will use that difficult place to accomplish his purpose in our life and in his world. And sometimes we don't even see it. We don't even see it. Many of the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah were never able to see the end of what God is doing. So he doesn't take that thing. Well, tomorrow everybody's going to find out in in school that they were wrong and I was right. And that soon they'll see in our society that, that Christians are right and all of them are wrong. That may not happen. So he doesn't take that approach. And third, he doesn't take what is what's the Stoics approach in his day. I, I call it the grin and bear it approach. He doesn't say there's no real purpose behind this. It may be senseless, but what we have to do is just somehow endure the pain and make it through to the end. Well, well if he doesn't take those three approaches, which are so common in the ethical approaches in the history of the world, what does he do? What Paul tries to do is to help people there in Ephesus, and I think through them, help us to understand what is happening in this world in the light of the larger issues of of what God has revealed about himself, about where this world is heading. A theological approach. Do you see what I called the sermon this week? A theologian deals with discouragement. And I'm not talking about me in that situation. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. 
That, that's what he does. You know, a theologian, I see almost when I say the word, some people sleeping. It's a really good word. It, it's just truth about God. Just teaching about God. What, what he really wants to do is to help God's people who have given their lives to Christ to see this world with God at the center, which is what is to happen in this world. To see this world that when we, when we embrace the truths that God has revealed about himself in this world, that it makes us see everything in this world differently. We see people differently and we see our circumstances differently. Well, what are those truths as he helps us to look at the world in a different way? There are two. There are two. And I'm going to do my best to explain them. Number one. Truth number one, the Apostle Paul tries to help us to learn to trust God's sovereign purposes and his ability to accomplish them. Sovereign purposes, is, is that too theological a language? Just that God is at work in this world. Things are not haphazard. God has had, from the beginning of the creation of the world, a plan. And we need to trust that when we're in the midst of it and we don't see what he's doing, that God still is at work and there is, a, there is an end, there is a goal that he's going to bring to completion. We need to learn to trust that that is true. In verses 2 through 6, the Apostle Paul does what I so often do in my sermons. He sort of recaps, he, he summarizes everything that he said in the first two chapters. Do you notice? He says, I've already written to you about this briefly. Well, it wasn't all that brief, but he says, let me go back over this just, just a little bit with you. I want to remind you uh, that God has been at work in this world since the very beginning of creation and before, before the creation of the world, that our eternal Father, the maker of heaven and earth, had a plan. And, and that plan was that he was going to plant this unexpected, adopted people of God into this world that would just astound everybody as we, they see us worshiping and serving alongside one another. And many people I can just hear were accusing him of this. Paul, but that's a brand new thing. We, we don't see that in the Old Testament. And Paul says, it's not a new thing. Uh, God, this has always been God's plan. And there are so many indications that when God was drawing together a people through whom he, who he would bless the world, the people of Israel, through whom the rescuer, the Messiah, even the Lord Jesus, would come, they knew that, that this would be a blessing to all peoples. But they didn't quite see what would happen. They may not have seen clearly what was a mystery. It hadn't been fully revealed to them. That, that, that all people are now going to be in one family. And the real mystery was how God was going to do it. And now we know, he says, now we know God entered the world through Christ. The one sinless one to live in this world so that he alone could go to the cross and bear our sins. But even though he bore our sins, sin and death did not defeat him. He defeated death through his resurrection. We read about in, in chapter 1. So that now the work of God is happening and we can see it taking place. See verse 6. This mystery is that through this gospel, this good news about Jesus, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And it's almost as if he turns to them in Ephesus and, and says, you know that God is doing this plan. And do you know how they should have known? Because they were there. What God had said would happen was taking place right in Ephesus. And we see it, of course, now so much more clearly. It's just amazing 
that in all places of the world, Pasadena, California, a gathering of this family is here. And not just here, but already all over the world. So, so Paul would say there in verse 12, you know it's true, because in him, in Christ, and through faith in Christ, we all now may approach God with freedom and confidence. He says it's happening. This purpose that God had said would come into this world, it's happening. Or, or notice in verse 13, I remind you my sufferings are for your glory. So, so don't be discouraged. But I'll, I need to show you something. In his enthusiasm, Paul wanted to show them another part of the greatness of this purpose of God. No, in this. Do you know how many things I want to put into the sermon that I leave out? You may find that hard to believe. This, <laughs> this part I've been wrestling about leaving, but I, I can't leave it out. Look at verse 10 with me. A further part of his intent, this purpose of God, was that now, through this church, through the gathering of this unexpected family, made up of people who would never otherwise even be together, now we're in one family, one building together, through the church, as it is seen in the universe, what happens? The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. You should be awfully excited about that. That's a pretty thrilling thing that's happened. As far as I can understand it, this is what Paul is saying. Uh, There is a whole spiritual realm that we just in our physical lives have been dead to. When you trust Christ, you're made alive to God, and then he begins to reveal to us there's a whole realm of spiritual reality what he calls here the rulers and powers in the heavenlies, including angelic beings. Now, even though they are spiritual beings, it's pretty clear when you read Scripture that they don't have the same abilities as God, these rulers and powers in the heavenlies. And one of the things that apparently they cannot do, they can't see into the future the way God does. So that as Peter would talk about it, he would say as this is unfolding, this whole message of the work of God, angels long to look into these things. So from the beginning of the world, they, they saw God create the world, Genesis 1, but then they saw things that just baffled them, it seems. Genesis 3, sin entering this world. Uh, the difficulties you read in Genesis 1 through 12 of the world becoming a, a worse and worse place where sin is just uh, permeating everything. God then choosing this one obscure group of people of Israel and protecting them you know, through all of these generations, keeping them from being devastated when they could have been What on earth is God doing? Then suddenly, in all of history, the coin drops. The aha moment happens. As God enters this world in Christ, He bears the sins of the world and offers now to all who trust in Him forgiveness of sins and membership in the eternal family of God. Through the church, God is declaring to the entire universe what he calls his manifold wisdom, that he knows what he is doing, that it's not random and purposeless, but God is at work. And I love that phrase. It's translated in my version. Look in yours. Manifold wisdom. The word manifold is the word that uh, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, is used for the coat that Joseph wore, the multicolored coat. It really is talking about many colors. Here's what he's saying, that in this church that God is bringing together, 
He is making known to the whole universe the multicolored wisdom of God. I, I love that. Maybe, maybe it has implications for me that they didn't have in the first century. But as I look at the church now, made up of people from Africa and Asia and North America, people of all different ages and all different educational and socioeconomic levels, and people see us worshiping together, see us growing in our love for one another, see us sometimes serving side by side in the community together, they will know that God is. They will know that God is. And Paul says, this is what God is doing. So if I have to sit in a prison for a little while in service to this, it's no big deal. And, and, and if there are discouragements that happen in, in our economy, if the, the election doesn't go the way we want, or for Paul, if I even have to be under a government like Nero, where eventually be put to death, it's not going to thwart the purposes of God. Essentially, Paul is saying the very same thing that Jesus would say in John chapter 14 when his disciples couldn't understand why he would have to go to the cross. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I'm doing it for you. I must go through the cross to prepare a place for you. Now, you trust God. Trust me. And so the question comes to us today. Whenever you and I go through difficulties, discouraging times that we can make no sense of, can we still trust that God is working out his purposes? Now that we look back at Paul being in a prison, which surely made no sense to the Ephesian Christians looking at him, you and I realize that so much of this Bible was written while he was in those prisons, right? If he hadn't been there, there's so much that you and I study each week that we wouldn't even have. You see, we see a little bit of it now, don't we? But that is the first theological truth that I just want to give to you. Our Father is at work, even if everything in this world seems to be going wrong. And he has the power and wisdom to bring it to completion. So if you are going through some very discouraging times that make no sense to you, my prayer today is that you will give that situation to him and simply say, Father, I want to be faithful to you wherever you put me, and I will trust you. I will trust you. Which brings me to the second truth. Oh, I have to speak faster about this truth. We also need to learn to develop genuine, lasting, Christian Values. I, I put the hyphen before Christian Ian because I know that word has almost lost its meaning. It means a life centered in Christ. We need to develop. Now, I want to show you something that many people might find strange. Look at verse 1. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Do you notice he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome? Isn't that, to me, that's strange. Most of us will say, oh, I'm in this Roman prison. No, 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 no. I'm here because of Christ Jesus. And in case we miss it, he, he brings it back again in verse 7. I became a doulos, a servant, a slave, but not of Caesar, of this gospel. And not only that, it's by the gift of God's grace. This is my great, great opportunity. How are we to understand this? He feels like right now I'm in my place because I'm a prisoner of Christ, not because of Rome. And, and, and the slavery that I'm experiencing, it's to the good news. It's a privilege. What a great place to be, he says, because I'm a servant of the gospel. How are we to take it? Well, here, this will speak to all of us. 
This brings us back, bottom line, to what happens when you and I become Christians. Uh, We read elsewhere in the New Testament, we become bought people. We were in slavery to our own sins. But now we read in the New Testament, I have been bought with a price. It was a costly price. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus so that I am no longer my own. I, I belong to Him. Or in the phrase that I've often told you is one of my favorite phrases, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for what it means to live as a Christian. I no longer live for myself, Paul would say, but for Him. So that's what I am. I'm a person who no longer lives for myself, but for Him who died and for the one who rose again. So that's how Paul saw himself. I am simply one who's given to Christ. I, I can imagine the Ephesian people saying, wait a minute, because I, I can imagine in a large church people saying this even to me. Wait a minute. Paul, you shouldn't be in a prison. You've served the Lord for a long time. You have great gifts. You brought us the gospel. Why, you should be at a five-star resort in Hawaii. That's what you deserve. That's what you've earned, Paul. And you notice what Paul says in verse 8. No, 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 no. You, you, you don't know me. Although I am less than the least of all God's people. It's an st- interesting Greek word. It, it's a comparative of the superlative for all you grammarians out there. He made it up. He says, I'm not just the least. I'm less than the least of all God's people. And he really believed, because he had persecuted Christians before he'd become a believer, that he wasn't worthy of anything. But he said, even though that's true, don't, don't think of me about the, as the great apostle. I want you to think about me this way. I am one who, just like you, was dead in my sins and have been made alive. I, I preached to you earlier that you were enslaved to your own way of life. I want you to know I wasn't just preaching to you. That, that's my testimony too. And, and remember I preached to you that we are by nature under the judgment of God. That's not just for you. That's, I saw it and Jesus met me. And even though, even though my life was just so messed up and I thought there was no hope, He took my sins. He took my life. And now... He's given me the opportunity to be the one that he has called to bring good news to all the nations. Can you believe it? You see, what he's saying is that once I came to know Christ, all of my former values were just transformed. Turned from inside out. I used to live for myself no more. I used to want to be known as the the famous scholar Paul. But now I am... A person who belongs to Christ. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment because what I'm going to say I think is so countercultural that I really thought nobody in Southern California will listen to me, much less understand me. So I put something up here about discouragement. Discouragement comes because we lose the things we're really after in life. Discouragement comes. Because there's something we're really after in life that we've lost. So when we have a message on discouragement, the question that I need to bring to you, bottom line, is this. What are you really after in this world? What are you really after in this world? What is first? I try to think of an illustration that would hit us. All right, 9 o'clock service. Let's picture on this side of the worship center, a woman comes in and her real love is a new business that she started. 
She's invested in that. She sees it. She loves to see it grow. That's, that's her first. But she also has other things she enjoys. And one of the things she en- really enjoys is uh, having acting parts. Uh, she likes to be in commercials and television shows and occasionally in a movie. Now, coming in on the other side, you can imagine this happening. It may even be true. Coming in on the other side, there's another woman. And what she really loves is acting. She's always wanted to be an actor. And yet, be- because she can't make ends meet, which wouldn't be the only one in Southern California, not being able to make ends meet because of acting, she, she's gotten involved in a small business. So that, but that's kind of a secondary thing. The thing she really wants to do is act. Now, the two of them go and find out about this plum roll that's being offered, and they both go and try out for it in Hollywood, and neither one gets it. Do you see that for these two women, they would have different levels of discouragement? Do you see that? The issue in discouragement is, what are we really after in this life? So Paul is turning to the people in Ephesus and saying, you think I'm really discouraged, but let me tell you what I'm really after in life. I just want to please my Lord. So I'm sitting here because this is where he's called me to go. I am a prisoner of Christ. So I am going to do what he's called me to do and seek to please him wherever he puts me. If he calls me to come up and talk about him at at this huge worship center at 393 North Lake Avenue, Pasadena, California, whoopee, what an opportunity. (laughs) I can imagine he would be so thrilled. But if he sticks me in a prison in Rome, I'm going to do the same thing. Either way, nothing has been lost that really matters in this world. Um, Let me make sure that you see one of the great quotes on suffering that just turns the whole world's viewpoint that I've got to have this or that or this or that. I have to preach in a big place, Paul might say, or I have to make sure that all the scholars know what a great scholar I am. No, 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 no. The, The great quote on suffering that I've heard in so many sermons, I thought it was from Elizabeth Elliot. So I tracked down her book, Facing the Death of Someone You Love, and found out she was quoting George MacDonald, the great Scottish author and pastor. And here it is. Jesus suffered, not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we might become like him. Does that make sense to you? In other words, Jesus did not bleed so that you and I never would have a time when we, we would bleed. Jesus wasn't poor so that none of us would ever be poor. Uh, Jesus wasn't at times homeless so that there would never be a time when a Christian would not have a home. No, Jesus died so that we would not have to pay the eternal punishment for our sins, but that in our own suffering, we might become more like him. Paul would say, hey, read another one of my letters, the one that I wrote to that church in Philippi. I want to share in his suffering so that somehow I will become more like him. Because I want you to know that I have learned a secret of being content. So if I have a lot, I'll be content, and if I have nothing, I'll be content. Book of Philippians, you know it. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, his values had changed. And the one thing that could never be taken away was his relationship to Christ. Nothing would separate him from the love of God that was in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what saved him from discouragement. 
So my question to you and to all of us today is this. What are you really after? If, if you come to church and do religious things simply because you want God to make you healthy and wealthy, you can see what happens if what you're after is health and wealth. If those are taken away, you'll be discouraged. If God is the means, but what you're really after, the end, is money, if we lose that, we'll be discouraged. In our day, I keep thinking, here, if what we're really after is fame, or to sustain good looks, or physical comfort, or ever-increasing investments, when we open up the paper and found out yet again, 600, 700, 800 points down, we will be discouraged. But let me tell you, I honestly believe that what is happening in our society right now with the difficulties in, in our economy, with so many people losing jobs, may become one of the greatest opportunities that we have to show people what, is, what we're really after. We may have the opportunity to show this world, as salt and light making a difference, how a Christian does not become disillusioned and discouraged, even when those things that we have lost would devastate so many other people. See, if those are the things we're after, uh, wealth, health, good looks, uh, reputation, those things become our enslavement. We're in prison to them. We've got to have them. Once we have them, we can't let go of them. Because if they're taken away, our joy is gone. But if Christ is what we are after, then we are free. We are free. There's a great hymn. John and Dwayne, we need to write a new melody to this because the text is so great. I can only show you one stanza of it. Here it is. It's a prayer. Make me a captive, Lord. Have you ever heard that hymn? Make me a captive, Lord, then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. God, imprison me within your arms, and strong shall be my stand. See, the Apostle Paul is turning to us and saying, all right, if you become a true believer, a follower in Jesus, then number one, you're going to know that God has a purpose because that purpose has changed your life. Trust Him. And number two, look at your values because you no longer have temporary material values. You belong to Christ. Which brings him to his, what I call, the caring pastor's heartfelt plea. After all of this discussion, verse 13, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. My brothers and sisters here at Lake Avenue Church, I want you to know that's your pastor's prayer and plea for you too. I, I can't promise you that this week, I would love to, and maybe God will do it, that this week the, the stock market will triple in its values. And for those of you who want a home, the, the mortgage rates will sink down and you can all get it. And suddenly next week we'll all be skipping into church because everything is going so well in the world. I cannot promise you that. We can pray for that. We can ask our Lord for that, as long as that's not the main thing. But I can only tell you this, that God is still at work in this world. 
and that those are not to be the main thing we're after. And my prayer for you is whatever happens to you, because I've been finding out from among us, there's so many here who have personally lost their jobs. Last night I was talking with a group of others who people around them had lost their their jobs. And some of you have been involved in having to release people you really care about. And we come and can feel such discouragement. Your pastor's heartfelt plea is that whatever happens, you will not be discouraged. That somehow you will know that God is worthy of trust. That we will be a family that stands together when our people are hurting and tries to reach out to others when they are as well. That we will always know that even if we have to be thrown in a prison in Rome, nothing that matters eternally can be lost. So we come back to the first commandment, don't we? You notice that? Everything keeps coming back to that first commandment. If you weren't here for that series, you need to be. First commandment, God first. Nothing in front of God. When God is first, there is the one thing that will never leave you or forsake you. And when God is first, you are free. When God is first, we don't have to be discouraged. To his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, I pray that I have read your text well and been faithful to it. And just as you have used this passage to encourage your children throughout the ages in these challenging times economically and politically, Father, speak to us. Help us to be involved positively in this world in every way that even when things happen that we cannot imagine. We come to you today, Father, and say, our lives are yours. We trust you. Take away discouragement, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.